and welcome to City Breaks Bath, episode 12, Laycock and Caution. An idea for a lovely day out, not too far from Bath. I think the furthest point is about 40-45 minutes drive, should you fancy a change on one of your days visiting the city. Actually, I don't think Bath is really one of those cities from which you absolutely feel you have to escape after a few days. Too much noise, too much traffic. Bath does have quite a lot of traffic. But nevertheless, I think the elegance of the surroundings and the choice of so many classy things there are to do there will keep you sustained. But if you do fancy having a little look out to see what else there is, then a day out to Laycock and or Corsham is certainly a nice thing to do. Usually I do try and have day out ideas which can be easily done by public transport. I think this one isn't really in that category, but it is a nice, quiet, easy drive. So hopefully some people will feel inspired to give it a go. Because if you go to Laycock and Corsham, you'll see the Avon and Wiltshire countryside, you'll see some lovely old historic buildings, and you will meet a range of eccentric English characters. The mum of eight who founded an abbey. The scientist who couldn't draw and so was determined to invent photography so that he could keep his holiday snaps and remember where he'd been. The rich widow who founded a school and an almshouse following her Puritan charitable instincts, but who at the same time wrote a list of 45 ordinances, rules that people had to keep if they wanted to live in her almshouse or be educated in her school. In short, all kinds of interesting little snippets to be discovered. And top of many people's list in this area, I think, would surely be the little town of Laycock, so full of old world charm that it's one of the go-to sets for films of all sorts of stories, ranging from Jane Austen to Thomas Hardy to Harry Potter. So let's start with Laycock and, historically speaking, before the film sets came the Abbey. So let's start there. This glorious honey-coloured building full of cloisters and architecture from the 13th century onwards was a working nunnery for over 300 years, starting in the 1230s. It was founded by one Ella, which she spelt E-L-A, Countess of Salisbury, who had married and had eight children before she was widowed, at which point she decided, perhaps in modern parlance, to focus on her career. So she became the Sheriff of Wiltshire, which meant that her job was to make sure that the laws decreed by Magna Carta were carried out in her county, and then she founded the Abbey on her property at Laycock in 1240. She herself was the first abbess, served for 17 years before retiring and dying shortly after that, in 1261. She's buried here in the South Cloister. You can find her tomb. The inscription is, of course, in Latin, but I've managed to find a translation which reads, Below lie buried the bones of the venerable Ella, who gave this sacred house as a home for the nuns. She also lived here as Holy Abbess and Countess of Salisbury, full of good works. You can go inside, you can wander the glorious cloisters, and the rooms leading off from them, which are still so intact that it's quite easy to imagine the life of the nuns who lived here over 700 years ago. And to help things along, there are very informative posters up in many of the rooms telling you a little bit about what you're looking at. In the refectory, for example, we know that the nuns ate here sitting at long tables, the abbess on a raised platform, And, apart from the fact that one nun was commissioned to read to the others during the meal, otherwise, silence would be kept. The nuns will have washed their hands in 
something called the lavatorium, a large lead basin, before entering the room, and then they would probably eat produce produced on their own lands, perhaps mutton from sheep, perhaps fish from their own ponds, accompanied by vegetables grown in the gardens and bread baked here in the bakehouse using wheat grown on their own lands too. The nunnery followed the rule of St Augustine, which was all about community rather than the individual, working for the common good, sharing, receiving only what you actually need. And so important were the rules to the running of the place that the nuns gathered every day in one of the other rooms called the chapter house where they would hear a daily reading from the rule of St Augustine. Here's an example. Quote, you should avoid quarrels altogether or else put an end to them as quickly as possible. Otherwise anger may grow into hatred, making a plank out of a splinter and turn the soul into a murderer. For so you read, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 1 John chapter 3 verse 15 So very much a life based on the rules of St Augustine and, of course, on the Bible. But the abbess and the nuns were also businesswomen, running the lands they owned, managing the people who worked on them. But the absolute central focus of everything they did was, of course, their religion. Indeed, there was another room called the sacristy, dedicated entirely to the things needed for church services and the practice of their faith. So in there would have been wooden cupboards and chests for storing all the things like candlesticks and chalices and altar cloths and serving too as a place where the priest who would come into the abbey to take the service, the women of course not being allowed to do that themselves, would prepare the bread and wine for the communion and cross himself with holy water before going to take the service. So what were their lives actually like? We know that they slept in dormitories on beds with straw mattresses and were woken up at 3am every day for matins, the first service of the day. There were actually eight services every day in total. The next two, Lords and Prime, also took place before dawn. So there was a lot of getting up and going back to bed. And we know that there was a corridor leading from the dormitory straight down into the church and that the nuns would hurry along to each of the services by candlelight. In the daytime then, a lot of time was taken up with services, with private prayer and contemplation, with reading, but they did manual work too, perhaps outside, certainly in some cases embroidering, spinning, weaving. Other nuns worked in the scriptorium, copying manuscripts or books. And books were really treated as treasures. There's an actual book cupboard still here, which dates from the 13th century, in which books would be locked away, sometimes actually even chained to the shelves when they weren't being read. Every nun had a duty to study the Bible, and there's a book still here today which you can see, written in the 13th century, which aimed to help them in their studies. It's called Expositiones Vocabulorum Bibliae, so an exposition of the vocabulary of the Bible, a sort of glossary, something to help them understand exactly what they were reading. We know that they wore mainly white. They wore white woolen tunics and a mantle lined with cloth in summer or with fur in winter and a garment called a pilch, which was a fur cloak. They wore veils. They wore wimples. And what struck me perhaps most as I was walking around these long, draughty interiors, nevertheless quite open to the elements, was that it must have been absolutely freezing cold. And I read that in 1242, 
The king, Henry III, granted the abbey one cartload of wood per week to help light the fires. There were usually two fires, one in the chaplain's room and one in a room called the warming room. And then I read too that in 1260, so 18 freezing winters later, the abbess Ella petitioned for a cartload of wood a day rather than just one a week. She wasn't granted it, but she was granted, or rather the abbey was granted, 40 acres of woodland nearby so that the nuns could collect their own wood. So all those little details giving a picture of the life that was led there for nearly 300 years, until the fateful 1539, year of the dissolution of this abbey along with so many others. The very next year, 1540, the building was bought by one William Sharrington, who paid £783 for it, and who converted it into a home. A colourful character, to say the least. He had royal connections, he'd been a protégé of Sir Thomas Seymour, brother of Jane Seymour, Henry VIII's third wife, and there were various escapades in his working life. He was, for example, the under-treasurer of the Mint in Bristol, where he is said, I'm quoting the guidebook here, to, quote, have enriched himself by illegally clipping the coins it issued. This didn't prevent him getting a knighthood when Thomas Seymour's nephew Edward became king, but that in turn didn't stop him from getting involved in a plot. Because King Edward was a boy king, there was lots of plotting and jockeying for position, and Sharrington's role in some of this meant that he ended up imprisoned in the Tower of London, but he had the foresight to confess he was eventually pardoned. In the middle of all of this, he'd managed to lose his property, I think it had been confiscated, but he now bought it back for a sum of money which would be the equivalent of about £6 million today. Even on that very brief summary, you can pick up that he was quite different in temperament and morals from, presumably at least, the nuns who had inhabited the abbey in the 300 years before he got there. More drama in later centuries, in the 17th century, of course England had the Civil War, the Talbot family who were living at Laycock at the time were royalists, lent the house in fact to be a royalist garrison, which turned out badly when the parliamentarians won and they had to surrender. There were more Talbots living in the house in the 18th century. They made major changes to the building, introducing the fashionable Gothic revival style, did a lot to the garden too. But I think the best-known resident will be the 19th century William Henry Fox Talbot, whose development of the art, or is it science, of photography made him very well known. We'll come back to him a bit later. So, in Laycock, as well as looking round the Abbey part, already described, you can look round the house, where the rooms have been left pretty much as they were lived in in the early 20th century, and where there are all kinds of crazy things to come across. A large set of moose antlers, for example, brought back from Canada by one of the Talbots who served there as a soldier in the 1790s. Then there's the family rocking horse, bought in about 1840 and called Firefoot because, as one of the children said, we said he galloped so fast that he struck fire from the stones in the road. There's an early Victorian book collection, all kinds of amazing furniture, and lots of snippets of information about the people who lived here. For example, there's the French governess, Amelina Petit de Billet, who served the family here for 15 years and kept a diary, often describing the many evenings of poetry and song with which the family entertained their guests and leaving little descriptions of corners of the house. For example, quote, One of the bay windows is so large that it makes a kind of drawing room, 
where there are tables, a writing table, sofas, etc. It makes a very large, comfortable and artistic room. Another voice from the past is that of Matilda Gilchrist Clark, later known as Matilda Talbot, who was the last family member to live here and who, in 1944, gave the house to the National Trust. She does seem to have been quite the character. The guidebook describes her as an independent-minded woman with a talent for languages. I like to think that she and I would have got on, although I think she was slightly more an intrepid traveller than I am, because we know that when she was only 22, she went on her first foreign trip to, wait for it, the Faroe Islands. She was absolutely a Laycock character. In 1932, when a pageant was held to celebrate Laycock's 700th anniversary, Matilda herself led the revelries, dressed as the Abbess Ella, and cheered rousingly by so many of the villagers, with whom she was apparently very popular. And quoted in the guidebook, I found quite a poignant remark that she's said to have made, which seems to sum up Laycock. Quote, I have a pleasant feeling that Laycock is rather like a tree which will go on growing, even if most of the people that sat under its shade have moved into another world. And that is how I felt wandering round, that so many people of so many different types have moved through that building and those grounds. Before we leave the Abbey, a quick pause to mention William Henry Fox Talbot again, known as the father of modern photography. He lived here, and he is the reason why one of the other things to do in Laycock is visiting the Photographic Museum. He too was quite a character. He inherited Laycock at five months old, and led quite a gilded youth. He went to Harrow, where apparently he spent his pocket money on chemistry equipment, moved on then to Cambridge, where he won a prize for his Greek verse. But the real interest of his life started after he married. He went on a six-month honeymoon to Europe and became so frustrated that he couldn't draw all the places that he wished to remember that he began to wonder about other ways of capturing images. How charming, he wrote, it would be if it were possible to cause these natural images to imprint themselves durably and remain fixed on paper. Amazingly, he wrote that in 1833. And then he set about trying to make it happen. Apparently he used to make little wooden boxes fitted with lenses and leave them round the abbey, where other people called them the mouse traps, and where gradually he became able to capture images, just as he had hoped to do. Unfortunately for him, over in France, one Daguerre was engaged on similar experiments, got a bit further, a bit faster. And so it is that today we have daguerreotypes rather than Talbot types. But he kept going, experimenting, taking images, printing them, publishing a book called The Pencil of Nature with 24 prints in it, some of the earliest photographs ever taken. And alongside all of this, he was also a landlord and estate owner he was the MP for Chippenham for several years. He was the High Sheriff of Wiltshire. He had four children. There really seemed to be no end to his talents, a point made clear in the guidebook, from which I quote, If he had only invented photography, his life would be praiseworthy, but he was also a classicist, geologist, mathematician, physicist, botanist and astronomer. He published eight books, over a hundred articles, and deciphered the ancient Assyrian script known as cuneiform. Wow! So if you go around the museum, you can learn all about his life and see a whole range of fascinating objects that illustrate his story. Some of the mousetrap cameras, for example. Some of his earliest captured images. There's one of a fern leaf taken in 1836. 
and another one, my favourite, from 1846, which shows Henry and seven or eight of his helpers, some of whom are wearing top hats, taking a photograph and printing it out. All just fascinating. But don't go to Laycock just for the Abbey and the Museum. You absolutely must pot around Laycock Village itself. There are only really four main streets, but the reason it's so interesting to visit is that it looks pretty much as it did, say, 200 years ago, and many of the houses are older even than that. Almost every building is listed because of its historic or architectural interest. Everything's built from local materials, the timber, the limestone, etc. And, importantly, it is not a museum. Every one of these houses is lived in. The name of the village dates right back to Saxon times, when the word Lakuk meant little stream. It's mentioned in the Doomsday Book of 1086 as being the property of Edward of Salisbury. We know that King John used to come here to hunt in the 13th century. There's actually a building next to the church called King John's Hunting Lodge. And of course its history from the 13th century onwards is very much tied up with the Abbey. The villagers were tenants of the Abbey. They paid their rent in work. So, to quote again from the guidebook, obligations included spreading half an acre during a year and helping to harvest the Abbey's hay and corn before their own. But it wasn't all give. The Abbey did charitable works too. We know that every year one destitute person would receive what was known as a daily dole from the Abbey. There were arms dispensed on the anniversary of Ella's death. Money and food was distributed to the needy on Maundy Thursday and on Good Friday 22 loaves of bread were dispensed. Because of its connection with the Abbey, where spinning and weaving were regular pursuits, the village became known as a market town. We know that there were markets here every Tuesday from 1240 onwards. And really, Laycock flourished right up until the 1800s, when the Industrial Revolution meant hard times for the town because mechanical looms replaced the weavers. And records show that in 1833, for example, there were 200 people unemployed in the village. Some ended up in the poorhouse. Some apparently managed to emigrate to Canada. And really, that's the date from which the village stopped changing, stopped having new buildings. But it didn't stop being a place where people lived. We know, for example, in 1903, there were 18 local businesses in the town of Laycock. As the guidebook explains, quote, There were four grocers and four bakers, two butchers, two blacksmiths, a fancy goods store, draper and tailor. Mrs Butler's Coffee Tavern at number 2 High Street was renowned for its generous portions of bread pudding and cake. Craftsmen included two builders, one a carpenter and undertaker, the other a mason, a hurdle maker, plumbers and chair makers. Today the main two industries are really tourism and, fittingly for a town which made its name partly because of photography, the film industry. Here's the guidebook again. The village has hosted many film crews in need of a historic backdrop, from Robin Hood and Jane Austen to the fantasy setting of Harry Potter's Hogwarts. Laycock has so often graced screens large and small that it's not surprising if visitors sometimes feel a sense of déjà vu. It does seem to be quite a flexible space because it served as a 16th century town in films like The Other Berlin Girl and in Wolf Hall, where part of the Abbey's exteriors were used to represent Wolf Hall itself, but it's also featured in many films set in the late 18th and the 19th century. Think Jane Austen, 
Pride and Prejudice, not once but twice, and Emma. The Hardy novels, The Mayor of Casterbridge and Tessa the Durvilles, were both filmed here, at least in part. And it became Cranford, the little Cheshire market town, which was the focus of Elizabeth Gaskell's novel, set in the 1840s. To achieve that, I know that earth was spread over any tarmac, a false shop front was put onto the Red Lion pub, and one June evening, false snow was spread about because they were filming a Christmas scene. Perhaps to a modern audience, it's Harry Potter that they're most familiar with. And I discovered that Professor Snape's laboratory was filmed actually in the sacristy. Some of the classroom scenes were filmed in the nun's warming house. And the inside of the abbey was used for many of the interior scenes in Hogwarts School, particularly in the first two films. It's very nice to just wander the streets of Laycock and drink all this in. It's also very nice to walk just a little further, go perhaps around the village. And if you want a bit of help with that, you can download from the internet two suggestions for walks, one known as the Laycock Pleasure Garden Walk and the other one is the Laycock Riverside Walk. Both way less than an hour long and both giving you stunning views of the abbey and the surrounding countryside. And the Riverside one will take you along the River Avon and through the wonderfully named Valley of Snails Mead. I absolutely think you could spend a whole day in Laycock, but if you do fancy seeing a little something else as well, then I'd recommend a drive to Corsham, which is 10 or 15 minutes away, a little Wiltshire town with two very impressive things to see. The first is Corsham Court, the centre of the Corsham Estate, which is about 2,500 acres, including five farms, over a 100 houses and cottages, other properties, shops and offices and whatnot. So actually, quite a blast from the past, really, a feeling of the manor house and its estate. Earliest records for the house at Corsham date back to 978, when there was a summer palace used by the kings of Wessex. In the Elizabethan era, one Thomas Smythe had a house built here, an Elizabethan manor house, completed in 1582, and which is still the core of the property there today. That's not to say there haven't been many, many additions and changes. So, the house is still in private ownership, but you can look round some of it, and there are special guided tours of the breakfast room and the library, which will allow you to see some of their very extensive art collection. Corsham Court also has a website, so if you want to visit, that's the place to start. It's best known perhaps for its picture collection, begun right at the beginning of the 18th century by one Sir Paul Methuen. Present owners, by the way, are the eighth generation of the Methuen family to live in the building. So this one, Sir Paul, was another of those multi-talented young men who'd mastered lots of languages, apparently French, Italian and Spanish, all before he was 15, and who then entered the diplomatic service and was sent off to be a minister in Turin and then an ambassador in Portugal. He acquired a whole clutch of other impressive-sounding titles, such as MP, Lord Commissioner of the Admiralty, and Lord Commissioner of the Treasury. Not to forget being ambassador to Spain and Morocco as well. Oh, and Privy Councillor and Principal Secretary of State. All of this, as you will imagine, meant that he travelled extensively through Europe. And so his love of art gradually developed. He began buying pieces, starting a collection. And of course it's been added to over the centuries. But still today, the paintings he chose do form the basis of what you can see there. Think Italian masters. Flemish, Dutch, French paintings, many of which he bought at auction. 
The garden, too, is a splendid, having been designed, at least in part, in 1760 by one Lancelot Capability Brown. Formal gardens extend to about 17 acres. All around the house, think long herbaceous borders, high walls, a lily pond, statues, not to mention an 18-acre arboretum, and, quoting from the guidebook, an Elizabethan conduit house from where the town once drew its water. So, a wealth of stories to be found in there if you choose to have a look round, and or it's interesting too to visit the Corsham Arms Houses and Schoolroom, a ten-minute walk or so from Corsham Court, and an absolutely fascinating set of buildings. So they are an arms house, actually that's still in use today, so you can't look round it, and a schoolroom dating back to the 17th century, which is largely unchanged and has many of its original features, and that you can look round. Details on their website, so Corsham Arms House and Schoolroom. Another amazing character from the past is responsible for all of this, and that was one Lady Margaret Hungerford, the wife of Sir Edward Hungerford of Corsham Court, who was a commander under Oliver Cromwell during the Civil War. Unfortunately, he didn't survive the war, so Lady Margaret then became a wealthy widow, but fortunately for the people of Corsham, she was one with very Puritan principles. So she decided to do something very useful. She purchased a plot of land, and on it she had built six armhouses for poor people and a schoolroom for, quote, ten needy scholars, along with a master's house and various other little auxiliary buildings. She was definitely in it for the long term. She thought it out very carefully and she bestowed £60 per year of income from her estate to finance the almshouses in perpetuity. She listed exactly what it was for, £20 for the master, £30 for the six residents and £10 for building maintenance and residence gowns. She was also very clear about how things should be run and she laid it out in a set of incredibly specific instructions known as Lady Margaret's 45 Ordinances. It was made very clear that if you couldn't obey the ordinances, you could be fined or even expelled from the residences, and it was decreed that one of the master's duties was to read these ordinances aloud to all the residents twice a year, at Michaelmas, that's the 29th of September, and Lady Day, that's the 25th of March, so that everybody understood what the rules were. Some of them included a ban on swearing, gambling, dicing, playing cards or drinking. Residents had to agree that they would, quote, mend their own chimneys and windows, weed their own gardens and tend the common hedge which was used to dry clothes after washing. It was, of course, to be a Christian institution. The residents were all to wear a robe with a silver badge and a cross sewn onto the sleeve. They were required to attend church they could choose between the parish church or the great mansion house, and they had to go to daily prayers twice, which were held in the schoolroom. Still today, there are residents in the almshouse, and that's the reason why you can't go inside to look around. But you can visit the adjoining schoolroom, which was also very much part of Lady Hungerford's work. Built in 1688 and left almost unaltered since then. There's a master's pulpit at one end. It was called a pulpit because, of course, the schoolroom wasn't just going to be used for lessons. It was also going to be used for prayers. Below that is the master's chair, under which he kept his long cane. And then lining the sides of the rooms, 
desks for the pupils. And right at the other end, a gallery supported by carved pillars, the place where Lady Hungerford herself sat when she came to attend services here. Because it's largely been untouched, you can absolutely imagine the prayer meetings and the lessons that were held here, and find yourself wondering what became of the ten needy scholars and all their successors after their education here. Definitely worth a stop-off, I would say. So, there we are then, a number of ideas for a short drive round Wiltshire, nothing more than three-quarters of an hour from Bath, and a real selection of interesting things to stop and look at. And next week I'm going to continue my theme of places which are easily reached for a day out from Bath, this time focusing on the beautiful Cathedral City of Wells, which is again about 45 minutes' drive south of the city of Bath, which also has a fascinating history and a number of places to look round, and where, if you like to take things at a leisurely pace, you can certainly spend a day. For the moment, though, let's leave Wiltshire behind, and I would like to thank you very much for joining me for this episode, and hope very much that you will do the same next week when we're off to Wells. Thank you then, and goodbye. Goodbye.